Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, November 23rd, 2020. Happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners in the United States. On the show today, news and listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim continues the history of Disney's Port Orleans and Dixie Landings Resort and how certain Imagineers tried to steer the company away from using Song of the South as the inspiration for Splash Mountain. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's invented an emergency hot dog that heats up when you crack it, sort of like a glow stick. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, a little deviation on this new invention. Long story short, don't put them in your back pocket. <laughs> Glass, not microwavable. Yeah, yeah. And it just sort of like, you know, far too many hot dogs have been ready for me to eat than I had previously planned. Just to, <laughs> to spend a lot of time totally standing up. So, all right. Anyway. Jim, speaking of hot dogs, you have undoubtedly pondered the question is a hot dog a sandwich, right? And that leads to other questions such as, are Pop-Tarts ravioli? Is sushi toast? And topics like this have vexed mankind for ages, Jim, mm -hmm. but progress has been made of late. Have you heard of the cube rule of food, which seeks to classify the category of food you have I, by where its starch is placed? I have not, but I, I, I'm <sighs> instantly fascinated. For those of you who are familiar with the mathematical topic of topology, this is for you. All right, so this is from the people at cuberule.com. Mm -hmm. It's called the cube rule of food for identifying dishes based on their location of starch. All right, so if you have a, a flat piece of starch, mm -hmm. that's toast. All right, we can all think of avocado toast, for an example. Okay. Think of it or any open face sandwich mm -hmm. is actually toast, right? Mm -hmm. If you have two parallel pieces of starch, that's a sandwich. Right, and that's what we sort of all think of as a sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. Three pieces of starch connected in a U-shape is a taco. <laughs> and let me just say that by definition, then a hot dog is not a sandwich, it's a taco. I'm four. Okay. Four pieces of starch connected in sort of a, a cube with two open ends is sushi, right? So think of a sushi roll, but square instead of round. Five pieces, so basically a cube with one with the top open, is a bread bowl or a super salad bowl, right? Depending on what you have in it. And then if every, uh, every uh, side of the cube is covered in starch, you have obviously a calzone. You know, this- <laughs> It's not wrong. It's not <laughs> wrong. I mean, it's just, there's a certain ingenuity here that I really have to admire. But on the other hand, something that's totally covered with starch, does that mean all all pies are calzones or are all so it depends mm. it depends that's a that's a great point so if it's a pie that doesn't have a top mm -hmm. it's toast <laughs> and if it does have a top well it depends so if, that, if, if it goes up the sides oh this is interesting what would it be yes a pie with a top is a calzone then yes Yes. It's a fruit calzone at that point. Again, we're headed into Thanksgiving, Len, and, and face it, you have just launched a lot of Thanksgiving table conversation. Of course, that, that means- What is a pie? What is a pie? But again, of course, on the other hand, who's actually getting together with anybody at Thanksgiving at this point? <laughs> right, exactly. It's the topic you'll be talking about on Zoom. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, LRose5969. Greg with two G's, W, and SJ Forkham, and longtime subscribers, KCM67, Daniel B, Ghost Dealers, and Kevin over at thehollywoods.net. Jim, 
As college program interns, these kids were the acrobatic pilots that actually carried Goofy crashing through the Barnstormer sign in Storybook Circus. Also, Goofy's insistence on doing his own stunts is the real inspiration for legendary Hollywood actor Tom Cruise. True story. Again, I learned so much in this segment of the show. I just, I did none of it true, but I really, really enjoy it. So the stuff you learn. I'm waiting for E to call us to say, like, you know, we heard. That's right. That's right. And we want to do a 30 minute long special. <laughs> All right, Jim. First up in the news, uh, Bob Chapek walked us through Disney's quarterly earnings call last week. The big thing that he announced mm-hmm. was that Walt Disney World had moved from 25% capacity to 35% capacity. Mm-hmm. And so this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the day before, we had actually counted the number of people in the park, and we had thought it was 25%. So in doing, so as soon as Chapek said, literally, as soon as Chapek had uttered the words, people started texting me from the media saying, is this true? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, 24 hours ago, it wasn't true, but you know, maybe today. So apparently, mm-hmm. the move to 35% capacity happened the same day as the quarterly earnings call. The uh, there were I will say that the people that I talked to throughout the Walt Disney Company had no idea that that particular announcement was being made, and I'll leave it at that. Okay, thirty five percent capacity, and that's helped because uh, if you look at Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, they've recently added some plexiglass mm-hmm. now. So uh, so you, you can't be in the same row as a different group of people, but you can be now in the same ride vehicle, and that plexiglass is helping out there, and that's really uh, cut down the wait times at Runaway Railway by, you know, 50% or more, which is great. That's great. Um, that's really good, too. The other interesting thing that happened last week, mm-hmm. Jim, remember you and I talked about um, a survey that Disney had sent out mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago asking what people wanted to do for New Year's Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out Magic Kingdom was t- testing some fireworks last week as well. I don't think this, I'm not sure this is uh, holiday related or what. Could have been just some stuff that they had to burn off. But uh, there was some fireworks going on last week all around the Magic Kingdom. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. And, and let's remember, when we have fireworks going off all around the Magic Kingdom, that is kind of a, a New Year's eve kind of thing that they used to do. It is kind of New Year's eve isn't it? Yeah. Awesome. Hmm. Uh, another thing we talked about uh, last week, we had mentioned that there was a, a company called FM Global. Mm-hmm. That we had seen walking around the parks trying to figure out what they were doing. We actually heard from one of our listeners who works from FM Global Gym. Oh, okay. <laughs> you never really know how many people listen to this show, but anyway, it was nice to get the email. Mm-hmm. And they said it's probably construction or building safety inspections like fire coats or whatnot, nothing, uh, nothing virus related. So just standard stuff that they got to do every once in a while. Cool, cool. Awesome. Um, also, we mentioned last week that the Muppets have returned to Liberty Square. And we heard from someone Muppet-related who will remain nameless, who wrote in with the following. Uh, the Christmas show in Liberty Square was a last-minute decision, hence no dialogue. The puppeteers came up with the little bits over the course of four days. Unfortunately, since there have been so many layoffs and the show is needed immediately, there's no dialogue because there's no time for writers to write or performers to record the audio. The good news is the puppeteers can still do Kermit's signature yeah! arm flail. Uh, and, I, and I believe that the transcription of that the audio part of the flail I just did uh, is is reflected in the, uh, in the I, it is it is that that superior vocal arm flailing Lynn yes that's really interesting you get, you get a lot of a lot of listeners who do a lot of things Jim well and again I, I am so grateful when they chime in to either add information or even more important correct us so yeah, it's like, exactly yeah. yeah always good all right so a couple of uh, listener questions we got uh, first one from Jason I think this is for you Jim mm-hmm. how much are Disney's plans for Walt Disney World's fiftieth scaled back right now. Even the new Epcot nighttime show Harmonious 
is now just a way to stop bleeding and bring locals in, not to get mass revenues, right? So this sort of leads into what we were talking about before the show about uh, all of the stuff that Josh tomorrow yeah. uh, mentioned as part of the IAPA conference, right? So, so first things first, right? How much are plans scaled back for the 50th right now? If you asked me this last Friday, I would give you one answer. But this past week, with all of the news in regard to not only the Pfizer version of the vaccine, but the other, well, I forget which the other company is that's come up with. Moderna. There we go. That has come up with the version of the vaccine that you don't have to keep in a special refrigerator at, you know, 300 degrees below zero, that sort of thing. That's zero Kelvin for uh, uh, for the... Uh, for there anyway, we go. go okay. So <laughs> or something. But, but anyway. it just it's fascinating to to talk with the people at Disney now. Because now it's like, okay, so it looks like we could actually see distribution in the first quarter of next year, which means that this situation they were originally planning for I mean in the best case scenario was that a certain amount of the populace would be have you know opportunity to take the vaccine and that sort of thing in the mm-hmm. fall of 2021 and it's just sort of like okay so we regroup you know and in fact the real 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World doesn't begin till October of 2021 so technically we can be on track now mind you I got to caution folks that it's the essential personnel. It's you know folks who work at hospitals. Uh, yeah, the, folk- the at-risk people, the essential that's people, it, exactly. in the, uh, the over 60s. That's the first group that's going to get it. So that's basically December, January, February, March. That's it, exactly. But that means that come the spring. April, May, June. Right. We're, right. we're going to see a recovery. Wide distribution of, uh, of the vaccine. That's yeah. it, exactly. So initially the plan was shift everything to the fall of 2021 and do the things that you just discussed, you know, creeping up yeah. capacity of the park from you know 25 to 35. Now the whole notion is like, wow, we could actually start. We, we could have, we could have late summer. That, yeah. That's it. Exactly. So much of this is in flux right now. I mean, there's still, yeah. I have to caution folks. The plan still is that at least till February, the focus is on obviously residents of Florida. I mean, there there are the people who will drive in to Walt Disney World from, what is it? It's 15 to 16 states they've sort of targeted for marketing, right? Up and down the eastern seaboard, the the places that people will drive in from. The drive markets, yeah. Yeah. This coming weekend is the first time in months that airlines are bringing so many of the the planes that were mothballed in for, for the people who are traveling for Thanksgiving. There's going to have to be a whole ramp up, not just from Walt Disney World, but for the various transportation systems and that sort of thing that support tourism in Central Florida. Step one, call the people that were laid off. Right? No, I mean, cool. There we just, go. Hey, do you remember how to drive a bus? Yeah. So <laughs> you remember how the deep fryers work, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, okay, great. No, that's great. that's it exactly. We're in this weirdly hopeful space at this point. And if you go to California, it's an entirely different situation. I cannot begin to talk about how frustrated Disneyland Resort Management is with Governor Newsom right now, just to the effect of with the rules and the conditions that have been set in place, even with the vaccine, it could still be spring, possibly summer of next year before Disneyland opens. And that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, but but Florida's Florida's going to be different. That's exactly long story short. Give us a week, then take into account that Thanksgiving people are sort of scattering to the forewind. So it might be early December, but Things are changing, and and in a positive way. There are a lot of stuff being fast-tracked. A lot of things are being redecided. In fact, it turns out 
they're going to start shooting Thor Love and Thunder in Sydney at Fox Studios in January. And it turns out mm. there's a number of the members of the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy who are going to be featured in this film. And the new thinking at Imagineering is let's shoot the right elements for Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind in Australia while we have all these people in costume, in makeup, and get this done. Because that right. the, once we have those ride elements, those film elements for the ride, we can move that much sooner on getting that thing open, which that's supposed to be the big marquee attraction that makes you go, I must go to Epcot during the day to ride Cosmic Rewind, and then I must stay at night to watch Harmonious out on the water. Right. That's the one-two punch that they hope really makes the attendance boom for that park for the 50th. Oh, and if they're doing it in January in Australia, it'll be summer, so they should have decent weather. You know, a lot of this footage is, is probably going to be shot on the set of the Benatar. Yeah. No. So it's like, I think they're going to be inside a building. But I okay. think right, they, they can step yeah, outside. They can do outdoors. There we go. Right. So. Yeah, just check in. Okay. I will say this, you know, as we we're talking about the uh, the vaccine, one of our one of our listeners is my good friend Brad, who's an endocrinologist, who's been looking at the vaccination data, or the vaccine uh, efficacy data, mm -hmm. literally since it was first available. And he has continually said mm -hmm. April for a timeline for general wide availability mm -hmm. of the vaccine. He's been saying that for you know for six months. Okay, so he's got that uh, he's got that spot on. Also. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. We have a, we have a lobbyist oh. in DC mm -hmm. who's been talking to people and he said basically, he's been saying the same thing for months, mm -hmm. basically, you know, 1st of April is what, you know, the CDC and other, other groups are saying that uh, the vaccine will be available. So I uh, just want to give a shout out to both of those people for being spot on. That looks like so far. Yeah. And then that's it. <laughs> There's a certain mouse that's really counting on that April yeah, delivery date. So exactly. So. So, uh, so Josh Tomorrow also mentioned Remy is definitely a 2021 go. So we were, we had questioned whether um, they were going to open it now or wait to advertise. So, so is your sense that Remy is going to be this summer pitch and Harmonious is the fall pitch and then maybe Guardians is the winter pitch 2021? Actually, let's shift everything about four months. My understanding is Remy more likely is... February. Okay, earlier than that. Okay. Okay. So Remy will get you through the summer. Yeah. Harmonious. Look for that now in kind of a June July time frame. And you're you're dead on about Cosmic Rewind. That that will probably be literally we are beginning our fiftieth anniversary and hey, look how we're celebrating with this amazing new ride. But the okay. belief is, especially coming out of the holiday season, relying so heavily on Central Florida locals, it's like they need Remy to be open in the January, February timeline. Okay. And then does that push Tron to 2022? Uh, Tron is such a magic eight ball right now, Len. It depends, right? It depends on how things go. Uh, very much so. And it just, in much the same way, remember when they were building Rock and Roller Coaster and they actually mm -hmm. built the, you know, the, so the track is in place. And everybody's like, ooh, look at the track. And then they build a, the building around the track for the next year. And people yeah. are like, why can't I go on the coaster? And it's like, well, there is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The track is the easy part. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Exactly. We're in that exact same situation with so much right. of the, the crumpled leaf structure over the Tron light cycle run track that you have to remember there was also 
all of the light element that needs to be installed there and then yeah, needs to be trusted. there's two elements. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff that they haven't even started on. No, the that's it exactly. Okay. So it's just that one, please be patient, folks. I mean, it will it will pay off beautifully once it's it's finally ready. But we've seen the track go in and it's just sort of like, okay, it, it, when when can we ride it? And it's like, can I direct your attention to Shanghai and take a look at <laughs> everything else that's, that's involved with that show in addition to the coaster itself? And, that makes sense. Okay, so 2022. Um, Josh Tomorrow uh, also talked about the Space 220 restaurant. We got some new concept photos from that. And also the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel. I forget what it was. It might have been Stingray on, on Twitter who pointed out that Disney's finally achieved it. They've created a way to charge people $1,000 to stay in a moderate hotel. It was, uh, was $3,000 in a value. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah no. The, joke, the joke, the point was made. Yeah. yeah. But again, remember, the room is only the thing you sleep in. And yes, you have your window that looks out of the Galactic Stark, the, the Halcyon. You know, there's so much more to this hotel experience, but just sort of looking at the design of the hotel room, it's like, well, that's cool. But you also have to understand it's the spaceship aesthetic and a room a room is at a premium on an actual star cruiser. Yeah, like being on a regular ship. Yeah, any ship. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. Premium. So they're leaning into the aesthetic. They're not being cheap. It's leaning into the aesthetic. I saw the photos of the Star Wars hotel and my first thought was this gameplay better be extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> And it's going to be, right? No, absolutely. The, oh, the, absolutely. The other thing that was presented at IAPA uh, was uh, Talak Mandati, mm-hmm. by the way, who I worked with mm-hmm. in another life. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And I've never, I don't think I've ever mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Talak and I worked together. Mm-hmm. Talked about uh, virtual characters coming to life inside the parks. And you and I have talked about many, many patent applications mm-hmm. over the last couple of years mm-hmm. where Disney's trying to do that. Yeah. So this was the first confirmation from someone actually related to parks. Mm-hmm. That that they were they're actually going to do that. Yeah. Well, remember, you know that that's Disney knows that you know the one thing it has over all of the other folks who work in themed entertainment, all of its competing parks are its characters, and the notion right. that it's one thing to have you know you walk around goofy, it's one thing to have your Mickey that can talk to you, but this what we're talking about here completely next level, and they want to have that sooner than later. They also mentioned something about a virtual reality experience in Animal Kingdom. Yeah. Okay. We do have a, a certain IP that is being built at Shanghai. Got an entire land dedicated to Zootopia. And the, the problem with Zootopia is you can have a Judy Hopps, you can have a, a Nick, a walk-around character, but to do the rest of that world... You know, with its giraffes, its elephants, its its rhinos, and all that walking mm-hmm. upright—that's tougher. So they have been leaning into that world because they really, really, really want to deliver. And one of the reasons they really, really want to deliver is there's a, a couple of Zootopia movies sequels in the works. You know, this is going to be an ongoing franchise for the park, and or excuse me, for the company. And, they want the parks to heavily support this, and they want people to remain excited about the Zootopia world. So the IP thing is all part of that. Or excuse me, the virtual reality uh, thing. Or so. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. That was interesting to, uh, to hear. But it's nice to, nice to get confirmation that they, uh, they're actually working on stuff that we've, uh, we've seen patents for and that we've discussed on the oh, show. absolutely. So, yeah. Nice. I will, uh, and again, since I uh, worked with Talak, I will extend my invitation if he ever wants to come on the show and talk about it. I'm, I'm, That'd be he's cool. always got a seat. Yep. All right. Fair enough. All right, another email from Danny, uh, who says, do you know why Rise of the Resistance is so difficult to run? Disney has a lot of experience with trackless rides and elevators like Tower of Terror, 
the attractions in Tokyo Disney. So why is Rise so hard to keep running? And I think, Jim, you and I have talked about this on the show, but you can't think of Rise of the Resistance as one ride. No, no, it's no, no. Four no. rides. No. Some would argue five. But yeah, okay. it's so many different ride systems that have to work in perfect synchronization, coupled with the fact that even just some of the show scenes are so complicated. I mean, there's that wonderful yeah. show scene, for example, where you are, your ride vehicle is moving through the, the, the laser cannon deck, and you have to sort of do this yeah. wall step to get between these firing cannons. And just that sequence alone, you know, the computer power behind that, that's more than runs the entire Star Tours with its six different simulators just down the street. Yeah. So that's what I would say is the, is the big complex mm -hmm. thing there, that it's a bunch of different ride systems. Mm -hmm. You know, that said, it, it doesn't break down all the time. Yesterday was a great day. Mm -hmm. So yesterday would be Wednesday the 18th. Mm -hmm. They had a uh, consistent day of no breakdowns at all mm -hmm. on the ride. And, the, you know, there are other days where, you know, it'll break down a couple of times for 45 minutes each. Mm -hmm. It's just, to your point, there's so many things moving around. Oh, yeah. The interior of the show is so complicated. Even a couple of safety sensors going off for whatever reason. And remember last year we had those, you know, the, the ride was down for weeks at a time because one hand-tooled part uh, had to be replaced. And right. just getting that one hand-tooled part made and then out to Orlando, you know, just... Yep. <sighs> and let's, let's not forget, uh, you know, we lost uh, half of March, April, May, and half of June. So what, three months mm -hmm of test and adjust. That's it, exactly. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just running a little bit later than it, uh, than it normally would. Yeah, but I think they'll, I think they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. All right. Another email we got from an anonymous American Disney Cruise Line cast member who says, I've been a proud CM for DCL for the last couple of years up until COVID. Since shutdown, I've had an incredibly difficult time trying to claim unemployment. And I've spent hundreds of hours calling and writing politicians, begging for help, but nothing is happening. I've not only lost my home on the ship, but I can't afford rent in my land-based home since I normally don't have to pay rent for too long, among other issues, including healthcare coverage, and I am sadly out of options. I'm wondering if any of your listeners is or knows anyone who is an unemployment lawyer or someone who can help me. Despite all my efforts, I keep hitting brick walls to get benefits I know I'm entitled to. Uh, the unemployment office in of my state, uh, I think this is Florida, takes weeks to return my emails, hasn't picked up thousands of phone calls I've placed, and has made errors in my claim that have slowed it down without any sort of explanation. All things considered, my solution, my situation sucks, but most of all, I just want to go back to work. I feel if, uh, if someone who knows this system more than me could look at my claim, it would be resolved quickly. Uh, and that's the end of the email. So if uh, anybody of our listeners, if any of our listeners are unemployment experts, possibly in Florida, that they might be able to help, send me an email, lenditurningplans.com, and I will put you in touch with this cast member. Yeah, Florida's tough. I mean, you've, Jim, you've seen uh, stories in the news of people in situations similar to this cast member who have literally made 4,000 phone calls. Mm -hmm. So the unemployment office, they're just, they're just flooded right now. Yeah. And I think and that's, just, that's what it is. And, and let's, you know, we, I don't want to get political here, but the, the Florida system was deliberately set up to be as difficult as possible to claim unemployment benefits. I mean, this was, this was not a bug. This was a feature. And, it's a feature. It's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. Yep. And so the fact that the pandemic has, has created this, situation that nobody envisioned when so many people are out of work. I right. just hope going forward that this gets addressed. So, Good. Like I said, if our, uh, any of our listeners think they can help, mm -hmm. send me an email, lenatturingplans.com. Put you guys in touch. Mm -hmm. All right, last email from Patrick, who says, your podcast and the prospect of remote learning for our kids for the foreseeable future 
nudged me towards taking my family on a quick, brief trip to Walt Disney World last month. It was a great trip, and I shared some of our experiences with the Smithsonian Museum after listening to your podcast a few weeks ago. In doing so, I reflected a lot more on how these lockdowns have impacted so many people, particularly those at Walt Disney World, and all the other businesses that rely on the traffic it brings. I know you have among your listeners a great many cast members. Please pass on to them that they, and the experiences they help cultivate, are sorely missed. And here's hoping the deployment of these vaccines helps turn things around soon. Amen, Patrick. Amen. Good. That's a nice email to end this on. I agree. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of how the retheming of Dixie Landings might indicate how Disney is going to update Splash Mountain. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we are back. And we left off shows ago talking about uh portal leads and dixie landing landings and it was uh dick nudis mm-hmm. right who was doing something with the walt disney world village right yep well the idea okay. there was that the village was under underperforming and this is remember village gets launched in 1975 at the same time epcot begins to make its turn from epcot the city to epcot the theme park moves into construction phase but the entire time the Walt Disney World Village, which again started off the Lake Buena Vista Shopping Village, just is not making its numbers. Just it's it's not delivering. And so Dick zeroes in on the Empress Lily, which is the 200 foot long recreation of Mississippi Sternwheeler, and he thinks, okay, that might be the possible leaping off point for a reimagining of the this Disney World still struggling commercial center. And he fixates on a piece of empty property right behind the Everest Lily, where okay. Disney had once envisioned uh, as part of an expansion of the shopping village, putting in major department stores and restaurants, in short, the Mickey Mall. What Dick wants to make is the Lake Buena Vista New Orleans Square, which would have taken 120 square feet uh, of this area and turned it into restaurants, entertainment venues, and all of them themed around a New Orleans mo- uh, motif, uh, and phase two of this project would have called for the construction of a 600-room, low-rise Disney hotel, which also would have had okay. a New Orleans theme. This is the plan as of spring of 1982. The idea was that Epcot would open the fall of that same year. It would prove to be a huge success, and then what Dick could do is peel off construction workers who were finishing up, you know, like Journey into Imagination. It's like, okay, you guys are through here. Come on over. To Lake Buena Vista, we're going to get started on our New Orleans-themed shopping village. That plan didn't pay off. Epcot opens in October of 82. Within a year's time, this $1.2 billion addition to Walt Disney World is being described in the financial press as a well-meaning misfire that just isn't meeting its financial projections. Okay. We see the price of shares in Disney stocks start to tumble during the same period, leaves the company vulnerable to green mailers and takeover attempts. By September of 84, Michael Eisner is now in charge, and he has a very different vision of what to do with the Walt Disney World shopping village. So as we pick up our story, Eisner, he looks at the entire 27,500-acre parcel that Disney owns in Florida. He looks at it like a general overlooking a battlefield. What Eisner wants to hear is the specific ways that Disney's vacation kingdom in Florida is being besieged 
what the Imagineers planned to do to repel these attacks. And as far as WDI is concerned, there were three key areas that are, are concerning as the 80s are getting underway, which what Walt Disney World needs to address. So first and foremost is Disney's direct competition. Other theme parks like Busch Gardens, the Dark Continent down in Tampa, SeaWorld mm-hmm. Orlando, and the soon-to-begin construction Universal Studios Florida. You know, those are the things that are drawing guests away from Disney World during the day. On the other hand, there's the fact that Walt Disney World has no real nightlife. Like, yeah, there's the top of the world, there's a luo, there's the hoop de doo but that's only, that's a couple of thousand people, not, you know, the yep. tens of thousands of people looking entertainment at night, which is why when the sun goes down, there's a lot of adults climbing in their rental cars or grabbing a cab and going to downtown Orlando where they can then experience Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Emporium at Church Street Station. Did you ever get right. that? And we know that we know from the stuff that we've seen at the Buzz Price archives mm-hmm. that Disney did a fairly deep dive competitive analysis. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Church, you know in fact, yeah, that's, Church. again, Eisner looking over the battlefield. I mean, he's that's the same meeting where the Disney Vacation Club begins its infancy. It's like, you know, how many vacation condos are sold? And, you know, should yeah. we move into that market? Likewise, how many people who visit Walt Disney World and Epcot Center are staying off property in hotels and motels along 192 route in Kissimmee. And up until Eichner's arrival, uh, Disney executive had this kind of laissez-faire attitude when it came to off-property attitudes. It, the, the thinking was, look, during the day, we get all of the tourism dollars. You know, everyone who's coming to the Magic Kingdom and Epcot, they're, they're buying the turkey legs, they're buying the sodas. We're doing okay. So at night, it's okay if some nickels and dimes roll off the table to local mm-hmm. businesses. I mean, this was when Dick Nunes was calling the shots as the president of Disney's Outdoor Recreation Division. He just thought, look, this is Disney World being a good neighbor. Let's make the locals happy by spreading the wealth around it. This all ended when Eisner became the new head of the Walt Disney Company. The days of Disney being a, a good neighbor in Orlando were officially over as of February of 1985. That's at the very first shareholder meeting that, that Eisner presides over. Michael reveals that Disney's going to build a third theme park, what was then known as the Disney MGM Studio Tour, $300 million project that's designed. We're going to take out uh, Universal Studios Florida. Then the whole notion of... We need a nighttime entertainment complex. We need something to take out Church Street Station. And so that chunk of property that Dick Nunes had decided, like Buena Vista, again, New Orleans Square, it's like, that's gone. Those six acres now belong to Pleasure Island. And then finally, we get our aggressive expansion of on-property hotel rooms. You know, in fact, that's supposedly what the Bass Brothers told Eisner when they basically bought all of those shares of stock away from Saul Steinberg and, you know, and Boski, just the effect of, look, you need to put more hotels on property. And so we get the obvious high-profile projects like the Disney's Grand Floridian Beach Resort, which opens in June of 88, as well as right. the Swan and the Dolphin, which open in January and June 1990, respectively. Mm-hmm. During this period in the 80s, the combined $2.8 million of exhibition space between those two hotels, Disney spent a lot of time and a lot of money promoting the idea of Disney's convention kingdom. Yeah, I actually have this marketing material. They did um, they did individual brochures. Really? For each hotel, yeah. I mean, they were 
elaborate with folders, with fold out maps mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the convention space and, and things like that. Yeah, they were I mean glossy, mm -hmm. full color things that you would you would hand out like at trade shows for people, I guess, you know, if you're doing a convention trade show where people come in to see uh, where they go on Absolutely. But you yeah. know, the whole notion it's like that we should be in this business. Never mind the moderate hotels, but we should also be the uh, in the on-property convention business. And in fact, let's build it right next to Epcot. So at night, when they finish going to the convention, they can then go out and do all the restaurants in World Showcase. But Dick Nunes had already talked up the fact that the Grand Floridian was in the work. So Eisner really shouldn't get credit for that getting uh, constructed. I mean, don't get me wrong. Eisner is the guy who had the guts to say, okay, yeah, we need to spend $100 million on this project. Let's go. Right. On the other hand, the thing... Eisner really deserves credit for is the Caribbean Beach Resort, the first ever on-site moderate resort deliberately designed to take on the competition of those hotels and motels along 192 in Kissimmee. But the part of it that gets overlooked is the Caribbean Beach was designed as an aspirational hotel. I mean, the idea was for a lot of people who've been going to Disney World who'd stayed off property. The mm -hmm. fact that you could now finally get a hotel room for sixty-five to eighty-five dollars a night, still pricey compared to the twenty, you know, twenty-five to thirty that you could get a room for out on on one ninety-two or thereabouts. But the, the notion is okay. Yeah. We got you on property, but now you're in the system. And so, say two and three years later, you contact Central Reservations at Disney, and the thing is, they have all of your info on file. And yep. I've talked with veteran agents there, and they, they would talk about the fact that they were trained to the effect of you called and they go, oh, have you, you vacationed with us before? You'd give your name, and you, they'd have your entire previous trip in front of them. And it's like, oh, well, you stayed at the Caribbean Beach Resort. And it's like, you know, for just $20 more a night, I can get you into a garden wing at the Contemporary, which is just a, walk, a short walk to the Magic Kingdom. And with each trip, when you return to Walt Disney World, again, the, the idea was to just nudge these folks a little further up the food chain. Uh, up the food chain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, you and that's, that's how it started for me. I think I've, I've, I've said this on the show, mm. but Caribbean Beach was the first resort, Disney resort that I ever stayed at. Really? Oh, okay. Yep. Where did you stay? I don't remember which one this was. Uh, this was, I mean, and it was around the time it opened, so in the 80s. But again, it's classic Disney, even with the Caribbean Beach Resort, because what is it? $65 gets you a parking lot view. Yeah. And this was this was my my twin sister and I, you know, as as college students, mm -hmm. right? So sixty five to eighty five dollars tonight was aspirational for mm -hmm. us, like you said. Yep. I mean, this was you know this was basically what we could afford. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, but it's just, I want to say eighty five was pool view. I forget what the seventy five dollar price point was for. So there's garden, there's river, there there's go. pool. There we go, and then there's standard. So it's probably standard garden. A standard view room is, is sort of like you're looking at the parking lots. Garden is you're looking at the interior courtyard. Mm -hmm. So remember the buildings are in uh, groups of, I think, four. There you go. Sort of that make a make a square shape with a sort of a center garden area. There's probably pool or river view then for the... So it's probably, it's probably 65, 70, 75, 85 or something like that. Okay. Yeah. And, and remember, it's a different theme, but we're working off of the Dick News playbook. These are low-rise hotels. Two stories, I want to say? Yeah, two stories, yeah. And construction of a phase one of Caribbean Beach begins August of 87. Plan is as a 200-acre resort, which is built around a 42-acre lake, would have 700 rooms ready for October 1st, 1988. An additional 650 rooms would be available to guests four months later, just in time for the start of February school vacation, with the final set of 750 coming in line in June of that same year, 89. 
Summer vacation. Sure. Yep. So at full build out, we have $50 million to build the thing. 2,112? 12 rooms. There yeah, we go. 21, 12, yeah. Okay. Now compare that with the, uh, the Grand Floridian 40 acre resort, just 867 rooms. That costs $100 million to build. But again, the rooms of the Grand Flow average 400 square feet, whereas the ones at the Caribbean are 340 square feet? Does that sound right? It's interesting that you bring this up because the other moderates are 314 square feet. Well, no, that's it exactly. (laughs) Oh, you said it. You said it in the next show notes. Yeah. Yeah, just because that's the thing. It's like, okay. Let me flip to the next page in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's exactly. Just for me, what was fascinating, it's like, okay, from the moment Caribbean Beach became available for book reservations, it sold out. And I just like, okay, we clearly need another couple of moderates. Uh, how cool, right. quickly can we get cracking on those? And Michael wanted the second moderate built as quickly as possible. So the Imagineers, as they're casting around for ideas, it's like, well, we got all this work that Dick and his team did on the Lake Buena Vista New Orleans Square thing. Why don't we just grab that New Orleans-themed low-rise hotel that he was going to do? And so... Right, it's already, it's already built. That, there we oh, go. So hold on, so pause real quick. Yep. So... Um, speaking of moderates and, and square footage, so one of the very first contentious emails I ever had to answer mm-hmm. for the unofficial guide was uh, about moderate room square footage. Mm-hmm. So we, in the unofficial guide, we have a room layout and we describe the 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 number of square feet mm-hmm. in the uh, in the room. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we said three hundred and fourteen square feet for you know whatever moderate was. You know, I forget which one. And we got a, I got a letter from a, from a reader who said, you know, at the time, Disney says that this hotel room is about 320 square feet. And this was back in the day, mm-hmm. like when they, when this information wasn't online and there weren't, you know, a thousand people a day looking at it. And he said, I can't believe that you guys are undercutting Disney and my, you know, I'm, I'm never going to read the book again. So I had at the time a piece of graph paper where I'd gone out and I had measured mm-hmm the room dimensions with a tape rule. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back to him and I said, you know, it looks like, you know, when Disney's measuring it. So if you think about the, the way the hotel room is, the room that he had in question, there was, it wasn't all rectangles and boxes. There was actually a diagonal mm-hmm. component where one wall sort of bent to the side to meet the doorway, the door frame. Yes. And I said, yes. If you, if, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you look at it, you know, it looks like Disney's calculating the area as if that wasn't a triangle, but it was a square or a rectangle. In other words, if they added in the missing piece, because if you add in the missing piece, you're basically looking at six square feet right there. But in reality, the hotel room isn't all squares and rectangles. There is this sort of triangular notch. If you subtract out the triangular notch, that's how you get to 314 square feet. And the guy actually wrote me back a second letter and was like, I will never doubt you again because I included a, uh, a photocopy of our original drawing with the notes and everything. He's like, you have a reader for life. There we go. Well, <laughs> like, no, yeah, that's just what we do. <laughs> just, again, there's real science here, folks. You know, that's so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, I love that story. All right. So anyway, so, okay. So they, they're like, hey, we have this idea because no, no idea ever dies in Disney. They just go in the idea refrigerator. There we go. It's part of the original concept for a journey to imagination, the idea refrigerator. There we go. Are you, but again, <laughs> remember what Nunes was talking about, much more modest hotel, just 600 rooms. To meet right. Eisner's ambitions, this would have to be at least three times as large. Where's the idea of Port Orleans at Dixie Landis came from? 
So here would be a moderate resort that celebrates the romance and the charm of the Old South, with a thousand eight rooms to be built on the Port Orleans side, uh, with a projected opening of May 1991. But it's on the Dixie Landing side? Where, where was it 2048? Does that sound right to you? I think it's fewer than that now, but it's, yeah, it's basically one is twice as big as the other. Okay, okay. Was it always two themes? Like, was it always basically a southern theme, but broken up into two parts? The idea is if we did different themes and recognizing the fact that, you know, the Caribbean beach had gone clean almost immediately as soon as reservations became available, it's like, okay, let's increase this by a third, but let's give it a second theme. So in theory... If somebody calls and says, I want to come back to Walt Disney World, my family enjoyed so much, and it's like, well, we can get you into, you stayed at Dixie Landings the last time, would you like to stay in Port Orleans? And then the idea was, okay, so we can't necessarily bump them up, because again, remember, you know, that, that you now have over 2,000 rooms over at the Caribbean Beach Resort, and you have right. you know, a total you're of... You're adding 3,000 here, yeah. And, but at the same time, if you're trying to persuade people to go over to a monorail resort, you know, you've only got the Poly, you've only got the Grand Flow, and you've only got the Contemporary at that point. There aren't physically enough rooms to, to do that. But on the other hand, if we, we give our Romance of the Old South two themes, it's like, well, if you're coming back, you stayed at Dixie Landing, let's let you in Port, Port Orleans or, or vice versa. And then with the hope that further on down the line, we have that spot where we were going to build Persia. At this point, they were still quite serious about building the Mediterranean Resort, where previously right. the Venetian Resort was going to be built. I mean, there were, there were still hopes that they could create these aspirational opportunities. But Okay. Anyway, this 325-acre Porter Lane Dixie Landing worksite, they break ground fall of 89, and that's less than one year after the Caribbean Beach Resort first opened to the public. So heavy equipment builds a two-and-a-half-mile-long waterway, which will then connect Porter Lanes and Dixie Landings to the just-opened Pleasure Island, which just came online in May of that same year. you get, you got to give Disney credit, by the way, because most companies would have driven buses. But Disney's like, you know what? It's the it's the uh, the antebellum South. Mm -hmm. You know they they used a lot of watercraft. Oh. We're gonna we're gonna dig a two and a half mile long waterway, and we're gonna commit to the theme. You gotta give them credit. No, there. no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Project moving at warp speed, I get largely because of the huge amount of money Caribbean beaches make for the company. On a parallel track, just three months before Port Orleans Dixie Landings breaks grounds, the very first Splash Mountain opens at Disneyland Park. In July 1989, July 17th, the birthday. And there's folks at the company who, even back in the mid-80s, are aggressively pushing back against the idea of Disney basing its first flume rider on Song of the South. Because, again, right. they know the history. They know that this movie, when it was released to theaters back in November of 46, yeah. had people picketing in various cities around the country who were just flat-out offended by the rose-colored glasses take that Disney had put in Song of the South when it came to the Reconstruction period, which, of course, followed the Civil War. And these imaginers are like, look, this is a bad idea. We're spending $70 million to build a flume ride that celebrates the romance of the, 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 the Old South. And it's like, mark my words, someday we're going to have to rip out all this concrete and steel and create a ride that isn't offensive to all of our African-American guests. And, and the then wed managers are like, what? What are you, crazy? If we seriously thought Song of the, you know, Splash Mountain was going to offend all of our African-American guests, do you think we'd be planning to build a Splash Mountain in Florida right now? or for that matter, spending $150 million to build a moderate resort, you know, that also celebrates the romance of the South. It's like, look, we've 
done our homework. We have all these focus groups. We're never going to regret this decision. And, it's, <laughs> and it turns out never came a lot quicker than anybody at WDI, yeah. you know, expected. How long, how long did, how long did never last? Oh, March of 2001, less than 10 years after the Port Orleans side of the resort opened. And by then, the Imagineers were in the process of retheming, renaming this massive complex. And we'll get to that part of the story, the final installment in the series, on our next Disney dish. Awesome. And that's uh, that coincides with the first actual on-site research assignment I've ever done. Really? For the unofficial guide. Was it Was it uh, during the retheming of uh, Fort Orleans? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about that on oh, the next show. Oh, can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. Bob had absolutely no qualms about saying, can you hop the fence? <laughs> it, was a, it was a different time. It was a different was a di- time. He actually didn't say, he didn't, he didn't say hop the fence. His question was, is there a place where there is no fence? Right. So let me, let me be I absolutely clear. I believe the, f- yeah. the proper phrase is, can you breach the perimeter? <laughs> anyway, yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that too. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in-park audio and the special series on Epcot storytelling that we've just started. On next week's show, we'll finish up this Dixie Landings history and start on Disney-related Christmas stories. So break out the eggnog and Yuletide logs. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be showcasing his own sustainable luxury recreational vehicle concepts with solar panels, a wind turbine, a pop-up second-story rooftop garden deck that doubles as a houseboat at the ninth annual South Carolina RV and Camping Show, December 31st, 2020 to January 3rd, 2021 at the Greenville Convention Center in beautiful downtown Greenville, South Carolina. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.